This is the next Simple Step Podcast. I'm Paul Goldsmith. This may be the most important episode of the next Simple Step Podcast you'll ever hear. It's certainly deeply personal for me and might be just for you as well. If you've ever witnessed a loved one experience something like cognitive decline or been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, Angela Chapman is my guest. She's a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner who specializes in helping people prevent cognitive decline using something called the RECODE protocol, and RECODE meaning reverse cognitive decline. And Angela, first of all, we've heard so long that there's no cure for Alzheimer's and it's genetic, but you're saying you can prevent it. There's something you can do about it? Yes, there's a lot you can do about it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's start there because that's really great news for those of us that have had a family member. For me, it was my mom with dementia who passed away at a relatively young age, 65. And that's what we're kind of told is the genetic thing. And we didn't find out, you know, until it's late stages. And what I'm learning from you and your company is age on purpose, that there's things you can do even before you get a diagnosis. Is that right? Absolutely. I have a long family history of Alzheimer's too. It goes right down the maternal line in my family, actually straight down. My great-grandmother died with Alzheimer's, my grandmother, my aunt, my mom, most recently my 64-year-old cousin. And so in that line, I should be next, but I don't believe that I will be next because I am using research-based proven protocol to prevent it And we even can reverse symptoms of cognitive decline. This is not a cure. I think it's very important to say that right up front. A cure would be something like you get a bacterial infection, you you take an antibiotic, it's gone, it's it's cured. But what we find with the recode protocol or pre-code for prevention is that people can improve symptoms or avoid getting symptoms, but If someone already has, say, mild cognitive impairment or early symptoms of Alzheimer's, and they do get improvement using the protocol, if they go off of it, if they stop doing the things that help them to get the improvement, then their symptoms often come back. And so that means it's not a cure by any stretch of the imagination, but it also means that something is working. So if someone's like you and have a deep family history of this, what is the next simple step by determining One, if they have a high probability of developing cognitive decline, and then how can they go about taking the steps to prevent it even starting in the first place? First of all, you mentioned genetics when we started. And certainly if you have a family history or you know that you have the APOE4 gene, which is the gene most commonly associated with Alzheimer's, then you you certainly are at an increased risk. If you're female, you're at an increased risk. If you have type 2 diabetes, you're at an increased risk. So there are a lot of risks that aren't related to your family history, but your genetics would raise your risk quite a bit depending on whether you had one or two copies of that gene that I just mentioned. I have one copy of that gene, so that raises my risk about 30%. But there are a lot of lifestyle factors that raise people's risks as well. Okay, let's break those down. So let's start with nutrition, clearly critical brain function is impacted by your nutrition. What are some key dietary changes that you recommend to your clients to prevent cognitive decline? Well, the first thing we do is get them off of as much sugar and starchy carbohydrates as we can. One of the 
things that we find, let's say, I'll give you a case in point. Sometimes it's easier to explain when I talk about real people, right? One of my clients, I think he came to me last, about last November, December, and we really started working together in January. And we do a lot of lab testing to start with, but when it comes to the diet, it was very interesting. And we see this often. He had a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. And about a couple of months after he had been using the protocol, and, and largely this was about the diet, his cognition improved significantly. In fact, his MOCA score, his neurologist had given him a, a MOCA and he had tested in the mild cognitive impairment range of about 23, a perfect score would be 30. He went back to her, she gave him another test, his test was, score was 29 at that point. And what, wow. what happens, and the reason that the diet tends to help a lot of people is because one of the things that causes people to have cognitive decline is either insulin resistance in the brain or something called brain hypometabolism, which means the brain isn't using glucose very well for energy. And so in both of those situations, if you can improve the brain energy, you can often improve the cognition. And if you change the diet enough so that the brain can use ketones for fuel instead of glucose, then very often people can get some cognitive improvement and sometimes significantly so. Okay, this is fascinating to me. And so how do you know if your brain is getting the proper energy from the food you're eating? How do you know? That's a really, that's a really good question. And the problem is Alzheimer's is really sneaky. Cognitive decline in general is really sneaky because it starts happening before you have any symptoms. So you don't know that things are going wrong. When it comes to, let's say, somebody with my family history, okay, long family history of the disease and female, I can assume, I can just assume that brain hypometabolism is happening to me. Like I, my brain is not using glucose efficiently. Now, could you get an FDG PET, some kind of an MRI? Yes, you could. And it would show the areas of the brain that maybe weren't using glucose very well. Based on my life, I choose, I don't need an MRI to just go ahead and start using the kind of diet that I know will help me bypass that problem and not ever have symptoms from it. And so that's usually what I recommend for people who want to prevent cognitive decline is make sure that you prevent insulin resistance, just peripherally, not just in your brain. That's not something we can measure, but it's easy to measure in the body and just prevent that. And I think when you think about insulin resistance and you think about people that are diabetic, but you're not talking about people that are diabetic, that's a whole different thing. You're talking about everyone in general for optimal brain health. I read a fascinating book, I'm wondering if you're familiar with it, by Dr. Chris Palmer called Brain Energy. And his argument is that mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. I'm saying of the brain and the body. Yeah. And it's all it's connected. All, it is all connected. I was going to say that for sure. So equal parts nutrition, what you put in your body, but also how you move your body, important for not just your physical health, but your brain health. So Talk to me about how you consult your clients with regard to exercise. Exercise is very important, both physical exercise and cognitive exercise. And I think it's one of the few things like all the scientists agree on. And when they all agree on right. something, you should pay attention to that. 
let me ask you this question. It's like a no, <laughs> no brainer to say, like everybody knows exercise is a good idea, but the last statistic I saw is fewer than 15% of the population does it on a regular basis. And so if everybody knows it's a good idea, they think, well, you know, I'll get around to it later or whatever. It's not being prioritized. And so I'm wondering, make the case, like, why is this important? Not just so you're jacked, so you're physically fit, but this is important, if not more important for your mental health. One of the things and what you just said before I answered that question, if I actually can answer that question, one is that Prevention is tough because it's not urgent. People don't feel urgent. And that's why it's easy to put it off and say, well, you know, I'm doing okay. You know, I've been doing okay so far. Why do I need to start now? That kind of a thing. And so it's very easy to put off. What I would say is what I said in the beginning, Alzheimer's is sneaky. About 50% of us are going to have some kind of dementia by the time we're 80. And people are actually getting this younger now than they used to. And if you wait for symptoms, by the time you have symptoms, it gets really hard to reverse. It's much easier to prevent something than it is to reverse it. And so if you're at all concerned about your brain health and your cognition as you age, then exercise is really non-negotiable. And you have to figure out what's going to be right for you. How are you going to start an exercise habit? I mean, there are a lot of different ways to get started with that. You know, just taking a walk after you eat will bring your blood sugar down. And that's a great way to get started. But it is challenging for a lot of people to get up and get moving. Well, I think you nailed it there. It's not urgent until it is. <laughs> and an ounce right. of prevention goes a long way. And so I wonder, the brain power is what got my attention. It, it was, I was putting my physical condition secondary. I'll, I'll get around to it, right? But just realizing what impact, just seeing what happens if you don't. And so what is your recommendation based on the research if somebody doesn't necessarily have an exercise habit of how often and frequency? I think you should exercise every day, just not necessarily at the same intensity every day. I don't think there's a day of the week that you shouldn't be moving your body. And we are so sedentary now, so much more than we've ever been, most of us, because we're sitting in front of computers and we're, you know, driving to work or some of us aren't even going to work anymore. You know, everybody's working from home now. And just the way that we're living is so sedentary and just getting up in the middle of the day and taking a walk around the block is something, right, that you could do that would be very helpful. A lot of people like to track their steps. That's a way to get started as well. But I think that you should move your body every day. So how often should you do more intense type of exercise? You hear the recommendations, you know, what, three times a week, 30 minutes a day. I would say, number one, especially if you're just trying to get started, the best exercise is the one you'll do. And the best time to do it is when you'll do it. What gets scheduled gets done, right? Yeah. Yeah. Get started and then worry about how often you're going to do it. But just get started. Get out the door. Get off the sofa. Walk around the block. Go to the gym. Hire a trainer. Do whatever it takes for you. Join a class. You know, fitness classes are great. You just, if they happen at the same time every single time, they end at the same time. Somebody else tells you what to mm -hmm. do. You go enough, you end up making friends. That's like the easiest thing to me that someone could do. 
Well, I appreciate you saying that. Angela doesn't know this, but I own a gym, a burn boot camp that does classes. I believe in it. So my wife and I get behind it because that's what worked for us. They have class times and you just show up and do what the instructor says. There's nothing to think about. You just do it and you get fit and you feel better when you leave. I'm sold. But you said it. It's like, that's not for everybody. So do what you're going to do. The best workout is the one you'll do. And on the step count thing, I saw the threshold for living longer is at least 7,500 steps a day. We hear this number 10,000 thrown about, but regardless, more than probably what most people are getting right now. And you kind of start with where you're at as a baseline and get more. And then every extra thousand steps you get a day is going to be better for your health mentally and physically. Absolutely. You know, my, my dad, he's 86 years old and he texts me his steps. I never asked him to do that. He just does it. I'll look at my phone and there'll be this number, you know, 7,962. One day, and I said he's 86. One day it was 17,000 something. Amazing. I know. I had to call him like, what are you doing? I wish there was a Wordle for that, right? Because everybody for a while liked to share their Wordle scores, which is good for (laughs) cognitive health. But if we had that for our step count, I, you know, whatever it is, gamifying it, sharing it with others, those are good tips to just make it a sticky habit. That's great. Absolutely. And the more accountability you can get and the more support you can get, the better. I love that. Okay. And so I think we've talked about diet. We talked about exercise. People know these things. One thing that I think is maybe not thought about as often is sleep hygiene. Let's talk about that and the impact on your brain. Sleep is crucial. You know, If somebody asks me, well, what's more important, sleep, exercise, or nutrition, I'm at a real loss sometimes. I'm like, well, you know, I I kind of put those on on the same level of importance. Sometimes you have to start in one place and then you can get to another place a little bit easier. But sleep is, for your brain health, crucial. Sleep apnea is a huge risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And that's because during sleep is when your brain, it's the lymphatic system in your brain, it, it basically washes out the debris. And... You know, one of the characteristics of Alzheimer's is amyloid. That's they're losing a little steam as far as the cause. You got to find the cause of the cause. But that's the time of night when your body's naturally getting rid of that stuff. And so if you're not sleeping very well, that's not happening for you. And so you really do need to be sleeping. And of course, the first thing, if you're having trouble sleeping, like you just said, is, well, what are you doing before bed? What are you doing to power things down? Are you getting rid of all the distractions, the blue lights, the bright lights in the house. Can you bring all those lights down and start working with your body's natural circadian rhythm to start getting ready for sleep? I mean, there are so many different things you can do. Is your bedroom cool enough? That can make a huge difference. Just turn the temperature down in your ability to sleep. You know, I say get all your chores done early. Right. And also cutting caffeine afternoon for me. I'm one of those people that could drink a a coffee or soda in late afternoon and then still go to sleep. But after getting a sleep tracker, I realized it wasn't deep sleep. It wasn't restorative sleep. And then notice what a difference it makes when I don't have any caffeine, limit the sugar and alcohol and actually go to bed at the same time every night. The quality of sleep goes way up. Absolutely. And that doing things at the same time is is huge, really is. That's great. Which of these things do you think people, your clients struggle with the most? They probably gravitate toward one or the other and like, oh yeah, I got that. I got that. Oh, that's going to be a problem. What's the hardest challenge for getting both your diet, your exercise, your sleep? That's a lot to take on if you're like, okay, I got to fix this. What is the hardest thing for them to grapple with? 
it depends on the person, really. Some people are, you know, already aware, more aware of the nutrition and things like that than others. I think exercise is a really tough one, you know, especially as people get older. That's why the younger you start this, the better, you know, the brain changes that happen with Alzheimer's can start as early as your 30s. And so the younger that you get started, the better, because the older you get, the harder these changes get. And exercise is one of those that probably gets harder than some others. Sleep also can really be a problem for people, especially if they have more, you know, real insomnia kind of a problem. And it's finding the underlying contributors to that. What's really causing it? I mean, what if you're doing all of those sleep hygiene things and you're still not falling asleep? You're, you know, melatonin, whatever, nothing is working for you. What's going on? You don't have a medication deficiency. We know that. And so it's like, well, what is it, you know, and how are we going to find it? But I don't think the nutrition is as hard as these other things. People are able to make those changes pretty easily sometimes, especially if they're real worried. You mentioned no shortage of medication. You are a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. What exactly does that mean? And how does that interact with the pharmacological solutions or at least pharmacological offerings in this area of preventing and limiting cognitive decline? That's a good question because the title of that does not actually convey what it is. It's more of a health detective kind of a thing where we use a lot of advanced lab testing to find the underlying contributors to people's health problems. And we just look for those hidden contributors that we can see on lab testing and we can see it before you have symptoms even. And then we can use the power of lifestyle to help people bring their body back into balance so that they can they can return themselves to health. And the body's set up to work. It should work and it will work. But we get it out of balance sometimes. And bringing that back into balance is going to take you right back to natural, more natural principles. There are situations sometimes where medication is needed for something, and it doesn't always have to be a long-term medication. But when you have a chronic illness, you know, these chronic conditions are mostly lifestyle related. A lot of Alzheimer's disease is lifestyle related. One of the books that Dr. Bredesen wrote, I was, he's a doctor who came up with this recode, precode protocol and has really gotten this out in the world. But he's got a chapter in there, How to Give Yourself Alzheimer's Disease. Oh, my goodness. Very good chapter. I recommend you read it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It's bold. And I think you talked about sometimes there are prescriptions that cure certain things, but there is no cure for Alzheimer's. So really, a lot of the drugs are managing diseases, but they're not true health care. And so I'm really fascinated by this diagnostic approach to health care, true health care. And the idea that you can actually work to have your health span line up with your lifespan, because that's honestly the fear of mine that I would live to an old age, but mentally not be healthy or even physically, right? So the idea that you know I can be moving around and thinking clearly on my last day on this earth, that's a win, whatever age that is, right? And so I don't know that I can control the number of years, but I definitely want to do everything in my power to maximize the quality of those years. And that's really what you're talking about. Absolutely. And it's something I hear people talking about more and more now. And it's just so important because for most people, that last 10 years isn't 
a lot of fun. You know, it's either physical or, you know, mental. And you want to be able to think, you want to be able to remember your grandchildren's names. You want to be able to have that cognitive health as well as your physical health. And I believe both are possible. I don't think that losing your cognition is normal. I think it's common, but I don't think it's normal. And this idea that, oh, I'm having senior moments, you know, and that's normal. Well, it might get worse and it might not get worse, but if you don't do anything about it, the longer you wait and the worse it gets, the less chance there is that you're going to be able to fix that. And so as soon as you start to notice these things, if you haven't already started taking steps to protect your cognition, then you should start immediately because that's something you can do something about. Absolutely. And I'm in my 40s and it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when I hear other people in their 40s that complain about being old. And it's like, well, first of all, that's a, it's a mindset. And if you're actually struggling with something physically or mentally, it might be a good idea to do something about it. And that's the, that's the beauty. I mean, we have so much control. There's so much we can do. It's just what will we do? That's a great place to end. I have a final question for you. If somebody has a family history of Alzheimer's or is experiencing some mild cognitive declines. They just can't remember things like they used to. It happens. It's pretty common. You said not necessarily normal, but it's common. What would be a next simple step you'd recommend? They get curious and what would be a next simple step to potentially reverse that or improve their condition? Well, beyond the lifestyle kinds of things that we've talked about, certainly would be important to start really paying attention, trying to dial in. Beyond that, work with someone who can help you figure out what's going on because we can do a lot of testing, a lot of advanced lab testing, functional testing that will reveal what these underlying contributors are. And you would be surprised how often it's toxic. And I'm a new client right now, and it has turned out that a lot of her cognitive problems are due to mycotoxins. I've got a lot of clients that that's the problem. One of them in particular, the neurologist at 61 years old gave him the diagnosis, said, you'll be non-functional in three years. And she didn't do any testing. She gave him a cognitive test. That was it. And they gave him the diagnosis, gave him their the prescription that doesn't, doesn't work. And then when we started, you know, they found the research. They found me when we started working together, I mean, it was, it was mycotoxins. And he had been exposed both in his home and in his office and no idea. It's been seven years now. He's nowhere near non-functional. He's living a very good, healthy life. He's not all the way back cognitively, but he's certainly nowhere near what the neurologist expected him to be. And if you talk to him right now, you know, just in passing, you would have no idea. Give us an example of a microtoxin. I mean, I don't think you're recommending people live in fear of everything in their environment, but what would be an example of something that they might not be aware of that could be a toxin? Well, microtoxins come from mold. And so if you see mold in your home, well, that's an issue. And, you know, it's not like just because you have some mold on the tile in the bathroom. I mean, you know, you're going to clean that up. But if you have a roof leak, if you have a plumbing leak, if you have any of those kinds of things, then you have to take steps to not just repair that, but you may need to remediate that as well. And everyone isn't going to get sick from that. There's about 25% of the population that has a genetic predisposition to mold illness. And that's generally the people that I see, they don't have this Alzheimer's gene when they have this toxic 
issue. They have a gene that's susceptible to biotoxins, Lyme disease, and things like that. And so that's a whole nother area that can affect cognition, and especially for those people who may be genetically susceptible. Okay. <laughs> that's a lot of information in a short period of time. Bottom line I heard is you don't want to wait for a diagnosis before you prevent your physical or mental decline. And age is a reality we have to grapple with. Hopefully we do get older. That's the goal, but get older with keeping our capabilities intact. So if somebody wants to learn more, you offer coaching and a lot of information on your website. Would you give that and maybe a way for people can get a hold of you? Sure. My website is ageonpurpose.com. You'll see three options there as far as working with me goes. I have a membership where you get all the education that you need. You get direct access to me. You get access to my clients so that people can actually support each other. We do Zoom calls once a quarter, lots of different things going on there. We do a group coaching program about three times a year. The next one's in January, mid-January. And it lasts 12 weeks and you also get 12 weeks of access to the community at that time too, because we use a lot of those resources. And then there's the one-on-one work with me as well for people who want to take that step to go further and get, get the lab testing, figure out what's going on and go from there. That's amazing. So it's ageonpurpose.com. Really appreciate your time. I think this is going to help a lot of people. I know it's beneficial for me. And so really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Angela. Thank you. Thank you. 